This episode of Serverless Chats is sponsored by Epsigon. This week, I chat with Sarjil Youssef about serverless in a DevOps world. This is Serverless Chats, episode number 89. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeremy Daly, and this is Serverless Chats. Today, I'm joined by Sarjil Youssef. Hey, Sarjil, thanks for joining me. Hey, Jeremy, thank you so much for having me. Uh, you know, I just want to say it's pretty exciting to be here. I've been watching the show for quite a while now, and it's just exciting to be here with you and you know, talk about everything serverless, I guess. You know. Well, I, I'm excited to have you here. So, um, so just to introduce yourself, so you are a product manager at Atlassian. Um, so I'd love it if you could tell the listeners a little bit about your background and what you do at Atlassian. Sure. So, yeah, as you mentioned, I'm a product manager at Atlassian. Uh, actually, a very new product manager uh, just a year ago. I was a software developer, uh, you know, within Atlassian, within Opsini, and now I'm a product manager at uh, Opsini. Uh, so I made the switch uh, to mm -hmm. product management uh, very recently, actually. And so for those who don't know what product, uh, pardon me, for those who don't know what Opsini is, so Opsini is basically an on-call incident management tool. It allows you to, uh, you know, route your alerts to the right person, make sure that everybody's aware of incidents that may occur. And it helps you all the way from incident awareness to incident investigation and resolution, right? So, uh, and my specific role at Opsini is basically helping DevOps practicing teams to uh, better their entire DevOps, uh, you know, flow, especially uh, considering incident management in that DevOps pipeline. Right. 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 Well, so that's actually what I want to talk to you about today um, is just about DevOps because I think there is. It's such an interesting discipline, um, and as teams sort of evolve and start using the cloud, it's almost like it, it's sort of necessary, I think, in order for you to adopt some exactly. sort of a DevOps, uh, a DevOps culture. Um, and working at Atlassian, obviously Atlassian has Jira and Ops Genie and all these other services that help with software development and the software development lifecycle and things like that. Um, but I think there's a major confusion out there about what exactly we mean by DevOps. And especially when you see companies labeling tools as like, hey, here's a DevOps tool, um, yeah. or you've got DevOps engineers and things like that. That just seems really weird to me because I don't think of DevOps that way. Um, and, and maybe we could start there um, and sort of just set a baseline for the listeners here uh, and, and have you explain what exactly is DevOps? And what do we, you know, what do we sort of mean by it as a as a practice or as a culture, as opposed to a set of tools or engineers? Right. Yeah. So actually, yeah, that's it, right? Like DevOps right now, the 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 reality is that DevOps has the word DevOps has become a buzzword. Actually, uh, you know, very uh, quite interestingly, just I think it was yesterday or a few days ago, I saw a tweet by Patrick Devois who was saying that, uh, you know, just you know, just because. Uh, it goes along the line, something like this, like just because a, an idea has become a buzzword doesn't mean that you should shy away from it. You should still go right. into it and explore what it is and you, you learn from it. Right. And that's what actually that's the problem right now. Right. That DevOps, has, that uh, the industry has been capitalizing on DevOps, especially like a lot of new startups are capitalizing on DevOps, marketing themselves as DevOps tool so much so that, you know, that the promise of DevOps, right, is some is kind of lost or you know not fulfilled as when mm -hmm. when you have all of these devops tools or devops engineers or devops certifications coming up in the industry so you know let's you know like let's take a step back and see what like you know let's try to understand what exactly devops is so 
and I think the best person to who explains this or who, or who captures this is uh, Jez Humble. Um, mm -hmm. So he's, he basically you know, uh, describes Dev DevOps as you know, a set of practices, a cultural mindset, uh, not exactly a set of tools. Yes, you can have tools to uh, help with your DevOps, uh, you know, uh, uh, your DevOps practices. I'm not saying that, or any tool that says is associated with DevOps that is definitely a lie. No, it's not like that. But um, so you can have tools to help with your DevOps uh, practices, your DevOps culture, you know, harboring that culture in your uh, company or in your team. But at the end of the day, it's it comes down to how you and your team and your entire organization are going from the ideation phase all the way to the you know, release to production and then maintaining of uh, maintaining of your product. And then, you know, uh, so where, for example, that's where we as Opsini operate at, you know, incident management, uh, how you maintain right. your product. And then like, you know, how you learn from that and then go through that loop again, right? And the idea here is that, so traditionally what we saw was that, you know, we, we had all these separate teams, you know, uh, where you had different roles associated to a separate stage in that dev, in, in your uh, development flow, right? So you, mm -hmm. for example, you had ideation. The first one would be ideation, where you would see more involvement of product managers and designers, and sometimes engineering managers. And then you would have, you know, build. Like you know, just talking very generally, you would have build. Mm -hmm. sure. You'd have test, release. Uh, you know, monitoring, incident management, feedback. You know, you and all of these were siloed. And the problem became that, you know, when when your product when your software would go from one stage to another stage when those involved in one stage would throw it over the wall to the uh, to the right. you know to those involved in the next stage the people receiving it in the next stage there was some communication gap right and what that resulted in was that things just went slower especially when you would scale your product uh and especially when things would go wrong so and you know that's what we see right in in uh in as an incident management tool we see that especially uh, for our customers when when in when our customers are using opsgenie and the responders are not necessarily the people who were responsible for building the code it takes them longer to resolve the incident and it's that's that's all that you know that's that's expected right you you are trying to resolve something that you don't know uh that you didn't build you don't know the 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 nitty the nitty gritty details about and you're trying to you know find what went wrong and right. you know that that's where that, that that's where that's what devops aims to solve right so so i would say that you know with devops what what you can achieve is that you can go faster you can increase your velocity while maintaining stability that's the entire promise of devops yeah and i like and i like that uh you know basically that quote of just because it's a buzzword doesn't mean you don't need it um yeah. I, and and i feel like the same thing has happened with serverless as well where everybody just starts sa uh, slapping the term serverless on their product or say we do something with serverless and um and and not that it not that it necessarily um uh, I, I think it just it just confuses things more and more. And so when you say things like DevOps, we need a DevOps tool or we need a DevOps engineer, um, that that it, it sort of perverts the underlying um, uh, the underlying principles, I guess, of of what you're trying to achieve. And and so maybe let's let's go there for a second. So from a principle standpoint or a cultural philosophy, as you had said, um, you know, what are what are sort of the main 
objectives here? Like, what are we trying to achieve with DevOps? Because you mentioned this idea of throwing it over the wall. And that happened all the time, right? Like, I I wrote some code, I give it to my ops team, my ops team tries to put it into production. And of course, this is and I'm going back way, I know you're kind of you're you're actually uh, much younger uh, than I am. Um, So good for you. Um, But that actually, I think is is good, because it gives you a fresh perspective on sort of seeing like, how things should be working, as opposed to old people like me saying to ourselves, like, well, we used to do it this way. So maybe we should keep doing it this way. Um, But so that idea of throwing things over the wall and having something not work, um, and then having to, you know, just kind of kick it back as opposed to just have a flow that this whole thing gets taken care of. So what are what are sort of those principles that um, sort of enable you to break down those walls or, or break down those silos and just kind of have your software flow all the way from ideation mm-hmm. through to production and deployment and then to even monitoring and, you know, and uh, and troubleshooting and, and uh, incident response? Yeah. Well, actually, yeah, that's actually a very great question. Like, so, you know, what, what exactly is the solution? If, if, if I said that, you know, if we say that, okay, the, the, all those tools that are coming out or all the certifications that are come out, coming out aren't exactly the, you know, isn't exactly the solution, then, you know, what can we do, right, to break down those silos? So, and I, I look at this in, uh, you know, uh, I, I believe that there are two things that we can do. One is to try to uh, involve everybody across that stream, right? So in, in, in mostly all the stages, right? Even, even as a product manager, I, I, you know, try my best to get involved in all the stages because, um, and also, and then also even within the ideation phase, get, you know, the technical side involved within the ideation phase. So it's not only a product, you know, PM group only, like get everybody on the same table and understand, uh, you know, how we can go from ideation to production. And that's that's one that that is one culture that, that is one practice that you really need to incorporate in your team. That like stop thinking about people as just fixed roles and allow more flexibility, and allow the flow of ideas more. Uh, that that you know, that one way is uh, how we can really uh, you know uh, break down the silos. Another way is that okay now that you have everybody. Uh, you know, you have everybody involved in everything. The responsibility also grows, right? Now, right. I mean, it's it's almost impractical to have, you know, a single, you know, or a group of engineers, you know, building everything and also, you know, making sure everything runs and while, and also maintaining the systems and, you know, getting everything deployed while ensuring its stability. And it, it becomes very difficult, right? So if, if we still look at traditional practices, having one team do everything would become very difficult. So this is where I believe automation uh, comes in and automation is key, right? right? And also, uh, you know, while we're talking about automation, we should also try to think of this left shift culture, right? So bringing everything closer to uh, either the development team or the ops team, or whoever else, but like basically bringing it closer to uh, the build uh, stage, right? Uh, and right now we are seeing, you know, we are seeing this trend, right? We, we, a lot of people and including I would say that CICD is kind of the backbone of DevOps because CICD right. is now looking at a lot of automation, right? We see a lot of automation features coming up over there, but, uh, and, and, and also not only auto, like when you, when you look, pardon me, when you're looking at automation, you're also looking at, you know, incident resolution and, you know, uh, you think that the entire incident resolution that would sit over here coming closer to your CICD and, Eventually, we're also seeing seeing uh, CI/CD tests and all, all those automated tests coming closer to the developers themselves. So you know, mm-hmm. you see, you know, uh, debugging and local 
you know, uh, having all these integrations in the IDE, you know, mm -hmm. being able to locally test your cloud apps and things like that, right? Um, yeah, and it's it's pretty great. Like we're seeing, so we are seeing a left shift. We are seeing an increase in automation. So it's not only a buzzword, but even though like you know it has uh, it is perceived that way, but the reality is that we are seeing a lot these improvements happen, and we are seeing an increase in DevOps practices and successful practices actually. Yeah, and I and I think automation is a good point because that's one of those things where um, sort of like automate all the things. Um, it sounds really, really good, um, but then it also scares people too, right? Like a lot of ops people say, well, "Wait a minute, if you automate uh, automate away my job, then you know what 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 am I supposed to do?" Uh, and the answer to that is there's a million more things that you can yeah. do, um, especially around security, around speeding up the pipeline, about again minimizing uh, you know your time to recovery or just things that you can work on. But the idea of automation is a key principle i think in devops because it just gets it's the idea of getting things from somebody's ide into production as quickly as possible mm -hmm. um and then being able to sort of understand how that change maybe impacted the overall system or whatever and mm -hmm. be able to re resolve those things much more quickly I, I remember the days where we used to work for months on a software release and then we would put the software release out there and then like 80 things would be broken and then so we would decide all right is it bad enough that we have to roll back the whole thing? Or is it okay where we can live with some of these bugs and then just set out the QA team to start doing some bug hunting? Um, and you don't wanna do that. That's just not the way that rapid software development and modern software development works. So this idea of deploying very quickly uh, and, and being able to see if you know there's any impact that is negative or whatever, be able to roll back those changes quickly, I think is super important. And then the other thing you mentioned about sort of, you know, sort of shifting left or this idea where the developers become more responsible for the code that they write. I think that's actually a really, really good thing where it's like, if I'm going to put a piece of code out there that is going to use too many cycles um, or it's slowing things down or it's, it's affecting the latency or whatever it is, um, you know, I need to be, I, I shouldn't rely on some other engineer that's running my system to say, um, you know, hey, I found this problem in your code. Can you go fix it? It should basically be as a team, you're saying, okay, I released this code. Right? We're noticing these high latency warnings or errors or whatever. I'm the one who is responsible for that. I should go in and I should be the one that fixes that. Yeah, no, yeah, that's that's uh, that's absolutely true. Like, so okay, you mentioned, uh, you know, you mentioned that, you know, like at some point uh, you used to like, you know, used to write code and then you used to like, you used to have you used to interact with the QA engineers and things like that. So in that in that sense, uh, Jeremy, I have been lucky that since when I started my career. So I started my career around like you know 2018. No, not mm -hmm. not that. Uh, way back. So uh, when I started my career in 2018, uh, the first company that I joined was Tundra, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, you, you've probably heard of Tundra. I believe you've had Emrush. Absolutely. You've yes, had Emrush right. Samdan over here also talking about, you know, serverless observability and debugging and things like that. So yeah, so I joined, uh, you know, Tundra. And, the, and then after Tundra, I joined Opsini. And both of these companies practiced, uh, you know, building software along the principles of DevOps. So I have never actually seen, uh, you know, QA engineers or, you know, a specific team just to resolve incidents. Right. Like for us, it was always like, okay, you write the code, you wrote the code. If something goes wrong, you're on, and if you're on call, then you, you know, or even if you're not on call, the person on call would, you know, alert you that this, you know, whatever you changes, you made something was wrong. So like, then they would pull you in as a responder. And then I look at the, you know, our customers, some of our customers still do have these practices. A lot of, you know, it's, especially when you're a large enterprise customer, it's, it's a bit harder to change the entire Absolutely. culture, right? It's a bit slower. So, you know, when I, when I talk to these customers and they tell me about these problems, 
you know, it becomes very difficult for me to relate to them, especially because <laughs> I have never, <laughs> right. I have, yeah. But yeah, but coming back to your point about like, yeah, if you build it, you run it. And I think that's exactly, that's exactly what, what I see, you know, uh, you know, serverless uh, services as a serverless offerings as a great opportunity, uh, especially when you're new to DevOps and you're trying to look at DevOps or you're trying to, you're thinking of adopting DevOps or your team is thinking of adopting DevOps. I believe this is where serverless comes into play, right? Mm -hmm. Because, you know, if you think about, like, if we go back to, you know, what I previously said about like, okay, we don't want to try to reduce, we want to try to reduce ops. We want to reduce, uh, we want to see a left shift of, you know, you build it, you run it. So the things coming closer to the people who are building things. And um, uh, we also want to see automation. This is where I believe, you know, serverless comes into play. Yeah. Right. Yeah. right. And um, it's, it's, and the reason why I say this is because, you know, like, okay, so when I graduated from university, right, and I, and I got my first job as a junior developer, um, Tundra gave me, uh, uh, you know, perspective of both, you know, like, okay, so this is cloud computing, right? And I had right. just graduated and I had seen, okay, this is cloud computing now. Okay, I'd always heard about it in university, right? In university, you hear about the latest trends and things like, okay, so, oh my God, I'll, I'll get to work on AWS. I had never written any, you know, I had never interacted with any AWS service before. And I was presented containers, EC2 containers, and I was presented AWS Lambda. And with AWS Lambda, I just, you know, got to it, wrote my first, you know, lines of code, got it in, uh, you know, uploaded it and, you know, uh, and I, I was able to trigger the Lambda function. With EC2, I, I spent quite a while trying to understand, you know, getting over that learning curve to a right. point where I was like, you know, like, oh my God, if I don't, if I don't, uh, you know, get it done by this week, I'll, I'll probably be fired. Like, you know, I need to, you know. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's funny. It, it's funny though, that you mentioned the idea of, of, of where serverless fits in in DevOps. Cause I, I, I totally agree with you here. Um, and, and I'll give you a history lesson. Um, and so I hope I don't sound like an old man yelling at clouds, but <laughs> no, essentially, no. How it used to be was that you would need to maintain a server somewhere, and usually it was a physical server that you know, we weren't even talking about VMs and things like that. Uh, it was a physical server, and there was networking, and there's all these other things you had to do with it. Um, and that was something where you know there was a clear line between someone who was a developer and was writing code um, to between someone who was actually installing software patches and you know doing the networking and actually plugging in um, you know plugging in cables in a data center somewhere. So a lot of that changed. Um, you know, sort of in the late aughts, you know, 2008, 2009, when when um, EC2 started to become more popular with AWS and so forth. Um, and and that made it a little bit easier, but you were still thinking about, you know, VPCs and um, and trying to do networking and, and that kind of stuff. And that was still, it was easier, but still something that you wanted someone to set up for you so that as a developer, I would just have an environment that I could use. Mm -hmm. What serverless has changed is that now you just have an environment, right? And so yeah. you, you don't have to set up an environment. You just need an AWS account or a Google you know, uh, Cloud account or IBM or whatever yeah. uh, that you can just go and, and just upload some code and have it immediately execute within that environment. And so that's one of the things for me where if you try to say to a developer, hey, I need you to take responsibility for all of this stuff, and oh, by the way, we're running on EC2 instances and VPCs, yeah. and you need to know the security groups, and you need to understand exactly. how all of these things might be able to affect you, um, that is too much, in my opinion, to ask somebody. Yes. But to say, look, and you're throwing your code into, even if it's a container in Fargate or something like that, uh, or you're, you're doing a Lambda function, 
that's pretty isolated environment. It's pretty easy for you to reason about if something's not working. I, I'm not able to connect to a service. Uh, it's running too slow. It's timing out. Like things that are easy, I think, for you to understand and debug. Um, and that just becomes, so I don't think that's too much of an ask. So I, I do think that you're asking developers now to go all the way through that spectrum and to understand a little bit of the operational aspect of it, but they don't have to understand the deep networking stuff or, or how packets are routed and some of that stuff. They just need to understand, um, you know, some of the basic cloud principles. So I think that I think serverless enables that and, and really is this huge enabler of, of companies accepting DevOps. Yeah, exactly. Like, uh, you know, that whole point about a lot of the uh, underlying infrastructure being abstracted away to the cloud vendor and becoming the responsibility of the cloud vendor, that in itself is, you know, just extremely helpful to, you know, anybody trying to practice DevOps, any team trying to practice DevOps, because all of a sudden, like, you know, you no longer have to worry about, you know, your ENIs or your security groups, as you mentioned, uh, you know, all of that is managed by, you know, uh, by the, you know, by the cloud vendor that you're using, whether it be AWS or Google cloud, cloud provider. And that, what that allows you to do is like, you know, as we, as we have seen quite a bit, like, you know, as one of the well-known benefits of services, it, it actually allows you to focus on your business logic more, right? And it allows you to, not only allows you to focus on your business logic, but uh, another underlying, you know, another hidden gem, I would say, is that it also allows uh, you to connect and communicate, uh, you know, focus on the communication and sharing of code and, you know, getting over that learning curve of, um, when you're when you're when you, other teams are involved, right? So even even though you didn't write the code yourself, if you look at somebody else's uh, lambda function, you can focus on, or you if you look at somebody's uh, somebody else's you know fast functions or you know, lambdas, mm -hmm. let's say you can you can you can it's easier to understand, right? Like so, it's easier to collaborate on you know on a code base, and on top of that, it just basically it it just makes it you know easier for uh, you know an entire team going through that spectrum, you know to manage that, that uh, you know, that pipeline, the DevOps pipeline going from ideation to thing. In fact, uh, in fact, I say that, especially, you know, uh, as, as a product manager, I, I, I would say that all product managers should also learn how to, you know, deploy Lambda functions, especially when you're trying to ideate through an idea, right? right. Because, you know, you, uh, it's become so easy. You can write throwaway code. It becomes very easy to write. You just write throwaway code, just code that works just to test whether an idea works or not. And to, especially when you're trying to find that perfect product market fit, uh, you know, you, you just write a bunch of uh, Lambda functions with your engineering manager or your lead engineer and, you know, show that to, a, you know, the test group uh, of customers, see if it works, go back and ideate it. it and it's so easy to do that because one, Lambda uh, serverless functions are cheap or serverless services are cheap. They're, the, you know, the pay as you go model. Uh, right. They're very lightweight. They're very easy to, you know, get up and running with. You don't need to worry about all that infrastructure that we already talked about. Um, so even there, just in the ideation phase, it's very easy to uh, go forward. Hi, everyone. I want to take a minute to thank our sponsor, Epsigon. Epsigon enables teams to instantly simplify, visualize, and understand what's happening with their complex microservice architectures. With their comprehensive, lightweight auto instrumentation, users are able to eliminate the gaps in data and manual work associated with other APM solutions, providing significant reduction in issue detection, troubleshooting, and resolution times. Epsigon aggregates and correlates data from all the third-party tools you love, delivering a single pane of glass for understanding serverless, containers, Kubernetes, and more. 
Engineers now know when something is wrong and can immediately trace issues to root cause before they affect production. Increase development efficiency and reduce application downtime with Epsigon. As a special for Serverless Chats listeners, if you try out Epsigon and connect your first trace today, they'll hook you up with one of their awesome t-shirts. Check it out at epsigon.com slash serverlesschats. I think there are a lot of benefits to, um, uh, you know, just using using serverless to do some of these DevOps practices. And I know we haven't really mentioned all of the principles, I guess, I and mean, we mentioned a couple of the, the main ones, yeah. but I think one of the things or uh, a part of the DevOps culture, or at least the part of the, um, you know, what you need to do to fully embrace it is this idea of building microservices, right? Because, I mean, yeah. microservices allow individual teams or small groups of people to work on parts of the application independently. And when you start dealing with some massive monolith and you've got a bunch of different teams all contributing to the same code base, it gets really, really messy. So being able to break those up into smaller things is super important. So um, serverless, I think, has a bunch of really cool things baked in, um, especially with like intercommunication between microservices. Um, and you don't yeah. have to set up things like Kafka or, you know, RabbitMQ or some of these other things that is just another thing to manage. Um, so what are your what are your thoughts on that? Like, what are what are some of the, the tools or the services available as part yeah. of the serverless ecosystem that that just help with microservices? Right. So I mean, um, you know, as you mentioned, like you know, microservices. We all, we all, we, we're all familiar with the benefits of microservices, right? And I hope we are. <laughs> hopefully, right? Like, <laughs> uh, believe me, like you know, uh, I have dealt with uh, uh, monoliths, especially like you know, when you look at front end. Front end is a monolith. So you, in the many uh, uh, cases, front end can be considered a monolith. You know, mm-hmm. you have this one big front end code base, and like it just becomes very difficult. So yeah, so and you really do see the benefits of. Um, microservices and it's actually microservices the idea of microservices that really plays well with the entire devops culture and practice right where you can have each team working on something you can you know go fast on that and you know when especially when you look at the stability i, I know we're going off on a tangent over here and you know we haven't started talking about we haven't started talking about you know how serverless is baked into the benefits of building microservices but um i just wanted to mention that uh one point that is really amazing that you know that i have seen when you know dealing with monoliths and uh, microservices that is that uh when you're looking at it from a devops perspective and you're looking at stability of your system mm-hmm. uh, you know just having you know one part break and you know uh and not affecting the other parts that in itself it's i i believe is taken granted for right mm-hmm. um it's, it's it's pretty amazing right like uh, you know being able to decouple uh you know all these different aspects or all these components of your serve of your entire system and looking at them individually where, where one component's failure does not necessarily uh result to another component's failure that in itself is pretty amazing with microservices however what does what that does lead to is that when you're thinking of uh, you know microservice architectures then you also need to think about the communication overhead as you mentioned right, right. so you need yes, yes you did decouple all of these but now you still need all of these to communicate with one another right and, and reliably I believe, and reliably yes exactly reliably with you know right and then as you mentioned there's like there's a lot of overhead over there uh, you know i personally haven't dealt with kafka or RabbitMQ. uh consider yourself but, lucky uh, yeah thank you <laughs> yeah uh but you know, like I, we, you know, we saw uh, EventBridge, uh, you know, 
And I, I believe, and I think a lot of people would agree with me over here that Event Bridge is definitely the next best thing after uh, AWS Lambda, mm-hmm. right? Um, and that that's because of like all the use cases that it has enabled and the, how powerful of a tool uh, of a service it is, right? Right? Uh, and it really allows you to think and uh, about serverless architectures and event-driven architectures in a whole new uh, from a whole new perspective, right? Uh, the, one of the best things that it that that it allows you to do is like reduce all those you know ops uh, that you would necess- that you would uh, that you would otherwise have to deal with such a, uh, you know and all that overhead with communication. Or one of the things like you know even marshalling and demarshalling, you're just sending um, you know um, you're literally just communicating in the form of events where and both uh, and with and being able to leverage. Other capabilities of EventBridge, such as you know, routing of events based on rules, uh, you know, that in itself also just enables a lot of use cases uh, in within your um, you know microservice architecture and also as ancillary services supporting your DevOps pipeline. Right. Right. So yes, one is one is definitely EventBridge. Um, another service that I would you know, and again, like when we're mentioning all of these services, it's also good to point out you know that age old myth about serverless equating to only lambda functions right so mm. a, lo- a lot of people especially even even i right when i began looking at okay what is this word serverless you know i started thinking okay yeah it's um it's serverless equals lambda functions then i realized no it's it's actually a whole set of tools it's a whole you know uh, set of services that uh, are available out there and like so we we mentioned uh, event bridge uh, we should also give credit to dynamodb right. you know uh you know where okay yes you have uh, you know we you know especially when you're looking at looking at it from the point of scalability you can have your entire uh microservice your entire microservice architecture built using serverless services but if your data layer isn't scalable then you know what's the point and what's the point, right? right exactly so, so having that incorporated also and then also you know uh, having a lot of the responsibility being abstracted away to the cloud vendor that in itself uh, allows a lot of uh, teams trying to adopt DevOps to go faster, right? right. So, right, especially when you're looking, at, you know, uh, at EventBridge, DynamoDBs, then, uh, then of course you have your AWS Lambda functions, your Fargate, your basically your containers as a service. If you if you if you find uh, FAS, uh, you know, services a bit limiting, you can always look at containers as a service. Um, and we are seeing a, a boom, uh, a rise in popularity with containers as a service. So you have this whole set of, you know, tools in your, you know, uh, in your cupboard that you can just basically bring in, plug and play, and that's what serverless allows you to do, right? It literally lets you bring in the service and lets you plug it in and play it in your entire, uh, in the entire way your microservice architecture operates. Right. Yeah. And I think, uh, you know, you, you bring up a point too. like you mentioned DynamoDB, which is has global tables and all kinds of things that allow you to, um, you know, to replicate data to other regions. Um, The other thing that's cool about DynamoDB or EventBridge or Lambda functions is that it runs in multiple availability zones, even if you're running it in a single region and and that gives you redundancy and resiliency and all these backups that uh, and again speaking of kafka or RabbitMQ or something like that where you know you'd have to have multiple services or multiple systems running in multiple regions or multiple uh multiple availability zones that were subscribing to all these events and trying to manage all of that complexity 
EventBridge just kind of does that for you, right? You don't even have to think about it. Same thing with um, same thing with with DynamoDB. Um, but DynamoDB Global Tables actually is something where this could get us to um, maybe not an easy way to get to it, but certainly possible to start thinking about active active um, regions, right? Where you exactly. could actually have your systems running in Europe and you have them running in the U.S. and maybe you have them running in um, you know maybe in Australia or something like that. Um, so, what are yeah. your thoughts on 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 that and and where serverless helps get teams to deliver not only deliver software faster but to deliver mm. software to more places or more regionally right um i think you know like if we take a step back and if we look at you know you, you mentioned active active so yes active active in, uh, you know architectures in itself is a whole different topic right and you have you know one of the great uh, you know uh, personalities in this field, Adrian Hornsby, you know, who Absolutely. talks about this quite well, and uh, you know, so and he has a great set of resources, blogs, and talks about that. And you know, anybody who's interested and wants to learn anything about Active Active, they can definitely go and refer to that. But if you look at that architecture from a DevOps point of view, from the fact that what do we actually want to achieve with this type of architecture, right? And you you trace back a lot of its uh, motivation and its origins. Not not origins per se because it's it's been there in academia for quite a while now. But a lot of the motivation to adopt such an architecture, you know, due to, uh, a lot of it comes from the fact that you know that that one horrific story of ne the Netflix outage, right? Right. And I, just, I you know just you know uh, you know I, I just want to mention you know as a side note like you know we've been talking about this Netflix outage for quite a while. Uh, you know I'm just waiting for the next you know big outage. You know, because we, I think we need, you know, we've been overusing this Netflix outage story <laughs> right. quite a bit now, right? Um, it, uh, you know, working in an incident management uh, tool in an incident management company, we do see, we do hear a lot about a lot of outages, but none of them compared to what, you know, what we saw with Netflix uh, or on that scale. But regardless, uh, so we see a lot of that motivation for Active Active coming from, you know, uh, you know, the outage of Netflix. And we saw Netflix uh, kind of start pushing, or uh, you know, the idea of, you know, resilient architectures uh, not not meant, not saying that it wasn't there before like of course it was but like you know we saw netflix one of the uh, the big tech companies starting to push and really think about it uh, from a whole new perspective and the whole point over here is to maintain stability right so uh we, and that again is one of the you know as we mentioned in the, earlier that actually is one of the goals of devops right and now when you're thinking about active active right it's it's easier said than done right that's and, very true. Right. Like, uh, it's easy. It's actually easier said than done. But like when you start thinking of uh, how serverless, uh, you know, tools can come in uh, and, you know, help with setting up such an architecture, it, you, we do see a lot of burden lifted off. So, for example, you mentioned DynamoDB, uh, you know, uh, global tables. Then there's also, you know, Route 53. So we have right. uh, geo routing that they recently, uh, you know, uh, announced i believe it was it's one it's one of the more recent capabilities with route 53 we have dns failover with route 53 then you have api uh, gateway which came up with custom domains uh which allows you to target now regional endpoints so you can see like we can actually build this entire active active service with uh serverless services where a lot of that responsibility again gets abstracted away to the uh you know cloud vendor and i know i've said this you know statement you know being abstracted away to the cloud vendor quite a bit and it's simply because i want to stress on the fact of how important it is to try to reduce the ops to uh, eventually move towards a very successful uh, devops practicing team right um and a lot of, and again having a lot of these uh, you know activities let's say being automated by these 
uh, managed or you know services as, as uh, you know especially when it comes to scalability and again like you know we talk about uh, serverless uh, in the sense that uh, so, so a lot of times when you uh, you talk about the limitations of serverless you look at it uh, you, one of them is that it's it's stateless right so right. a lot of people have difficulties in thinking about stateless uh how to how to think of like you know a stateless you know whole business logic and how would you have your business logic translated to a stateless architecture but with active active it actually becomes an advantage right to have a stateless architecture uh to have stateless compute services right because you know you don't want to hold the state in uh too long in an active active and you want to keep on switching between nodes and uh and another thing is also you know Another benefit where serverless really uh, uh, really shines is the fact that it's you know pay as you go the pay as you go model. Mm -hmm. So if you have nodes that aren't being used, you know why pay for them? Right. Right. Um, so that's another advantage where, where you know you can see you know uh, the the benefits of serverless come into play. Um, now uh, there's that, and there's also you know the scalability. So all of a sudden you have a lot of traffic. Being routed to a specific node, uh, you may not, you, you know, you, you may not have handled your routing rules very well, considering your traffic or things like that. And but it's okay, it's okay. Your DynamoDB is going to scale. You, if you have, let's say, a Lambda function over there, or maybe a, a Fargate instance, it will scale, right? So auto scaling, uh, pay as you go, and uh, statelessness, all of these, you know, come together to really help you build that active-active architecture and start thinking of it. Start thinking of how you can build that active active architecture. Now, um, by the way, another thing I want to mention, which you know I think we missed upon was, you know, when we're talking about like you know the characteristics of serverless uh, of a serverless function or serverless in general, mm -hmm. and how we're using uh, and how we are using these serverless uh, functions or uh, serverless tools to build microservices. One of the characteristics is that uh, when you think of a serverless architecture, it's event driven. Right? right, and that plays very well when you're dealing with microservices, right? When you, when you, think, all of a sudden you now start, you now have to start thinking about event-driven uh, uh, architectures. You have your again, we're coming back to event bridge, and uh, you, where your event bridge may be triggering a lot of your um, Fargate uh, instances or Lambda functions, and having, you know, just having that constraint of. Uh, having functions or having your compute resources being triggered by events allows you to uh, make sure that you think about this architecture in an event driven fashion right there is a possibility though and like i must point this out that there is a possibility for uh, you to fall into an anti-pattern where you know especially when you're trying to adopt serverless uh, and you're and you're moving to this granular architecture you're moving to uh, serverless architecture microservices from your monolith, it is easy, like you know, to fall into an anti-pattern where you where you try to replicate your entire logic, your entire business logic on monolith, exactly into your serverless um, architecture, where you would have one lambda sitting uh, before another lambda function, which sits below before another lambda function. All of a sudden, you have this uh, anti-pattern because where right. you can't do things asynchronously, right? And an asynchronity is something that is again another benefit of you know having. Uh, lambda functions or just thinking about microservices right yeah so there is this anti-pattern you can uh, you, you may fall into but as long as you think about it as in an event-driven fashion uh, as long as you know what you're doing as long as you do your research before building this architecture you should be good
Yeah. yeah. No, and I think that I think that anti patent is uh, is very prevalent uh, where people just end up, uh, unfortunately, uh, you know, trying to stack too much logic or try to chain functions together in a way that uh, is definitely mm -hmm. slower. But so we we talked a lot about the benefits, I think, from a DevOps perspective or from a DevOps culture um, of building things with serverless. And I think that makes a lot of sense. Um, but what about there's still ops works uh, ops work to be done, right? Like we still yeah. have to clean up development environments or maybe run some audits or some of these other things. So um, I, I guess from that perspective of, you know, and maybe this falls more on operations, but I think it's sort of part of the full cycle, right? Um, you know, yeah. where, where does serverless fit in there and what are some of the tools that, that are available for you to sort of, you know, just kind of run the infrastructure um, beyond just trying to, you know, uh, beyond just trying to, you know, deploy code that is, you know, maybe client facing. Yeah. Yeah. Actually, this is a pretty great question because uh, when I look at serverless and how serverless can aid in, uh, you know, DevOps practices, so like we, we, we talked about like, you know, in, you know, you know, serverless functions and serverless technologies inside the, inside the main, uh, you know, inside your main code base, inside your main infrastructure itself. But yes, then there's a whole set of other use cases that we can come to where uh, your serverless functions or serverless technologies can act as ancillary, uh, um, you know, uh, helper functions or ancillary services aiding you through that, you know, aiding you to get through that DevOps pipeline, right? Uh, so as you mentioned, right, you know, cleaning up your environments or even just thinking about deployments how we're going how we're looking at automated deployments uh throughout the cd ci cd um you know uh throughout the ci cd stage uh and uh, also automated tests and uh then again like monitoring and you know uh debugging and uh you know identifying root causes of incidents and you know remediation and all of that all of that can actually be done with uh serverless functions and the the thing is that there are a lot of tools out there that are trying to help you achieve these things, you know, um, like, you know, Atlas in itself is building a lot of tools that helps you achieve this, uh, helps you automate through this. But, you know, having those tools and uh, having those third party tools and having serverless uh, technologies integrated with those tools really does give you that extra boost to, to go faster while maintaining the stability that we're always talking about that we're really trying to go for. So for, I can give you an example. Um, Absolutely. So there are actually there are actually many examples that we can talk over uh, that I that I would actually like to you know point out. But one of the examples that I really like is, for example, we recently actually not recently uh, about a year ago or so, we built an integration with EventBridge, and basically the use cases were such that you know the way we saw customers using our, uh, the Opsini EventBridge integration was, um, okay, they get an alert from either Datadog or New Relic about uh, some form of configuration drift, right, right. in their uh, in their architecture, in their infrastructure funding, and once they identify this this uh, inf infrastructure drift in their AWS, uh, you know, setup, uh, you know, Opsini's would send you an alert, and that alert acts as a trigger through EventBridge into your uh, AWS infrastructure that can run automated playbooks to correct that configuration drift. Mm -hmm. Right, and I think that was just an amazing use case that we saw some of our customers uh, using. Um, another thing was, uh, like for example, like, you know, security compliance, or you know, or like when you see some 
suspicious activity right. in your account through, you know, you can use AWS CloudTrail or you can use any other uh, security monitoring or, you know, uh, audit logging tool. You get, you integrate that with, again, uh, Opsini. Opsini gets that alert. And it, uh, upon that alert, using, again, this is where I've seen customers uh, leverage the uh, uh, event routing capability of EventBridge. Uh, you know, upon, depending on what the content of the alert is, they route it to the right area of their infrastructure to immediately remediate that. All of this being done automatically. Right. So what we're actually seeing is a, a kind of a reduction in the need for SRE teams, the need for, uh, you know, infrastructure maintenance, basically all of ops, right? Like, so developers themselves can set this up, right? Uh, because it's so easy. A lot of you know, it's so easy to get up and running with EventBridge and Lambda functions or serverless in general that you can have your development team set this up and, you know, take responsibility of that ops part also. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I know that I think in the beginning you mentioned like, you know, sometimes ops can get scared like, oh, what's the point? You know, what, what are we needed for? But like, why not? Like, you, you, you come, you know, let's come together. That's the whole point, right? Of coming together and like helping the dev if the development team can't set it up, then, you know, that's where, you know, I feel that we need to start thinking of ops in a whole different way of, especially uh, with the advent of service and all of these third party tools, we need to start thinking of ops in a whole different way of how best, uh, how we can leverage the, the, this new technology in the best way possible to accelerate according to the team's development practices, according to the team's uh, cultural practices in, uh, you know, building software, right? Because again, every team is different, right? Mm -hmm. And that's why, I, that's also a reason why I, I, you can't really say that there's one solution or one tool that fits it all, you know, all right. the, you know, that will solve all the DevOps problems of the industry. No, mm -hmm. like every team is different. Not only like every team is different within an organization, every organization is different, right? So, uh, but uh, regardless, so you can have like, you know, third party tools to try to help you bolster your DevOps uh, solutions. But where, uh, but as soon as you see that, okay, this isn't, it's not working. That's where you can, you know, uh, fill in the gaps with serverless uh, services, yeah. right? Um, and I see, I think that that in itself is just uh, pretty amazing, right? Um, uh, like we have seen, we have we are looking at customers do this with Opsini. We are seeing a lot of automation come up um, in Opsini itself. For example, in Opsini itself, we are using uh, Lambda functions to uh, replicate customer traffic. You know, like uh, so, you have synthetic monitoring Lambda functions, right. right? And you have transactional monitoring Lambda functions. So, you know, these synthetic monitoring functions they're hitting our APIs. Then the transactional monitoring. Uh, Lambda functions are receiving that input and processing it and, you know, sending it to new relic or, uh, and, uh, the other monitoring tools that we're using. And whenever we, whenever something is wrong, that Lambda function will automatically send an alert, uh, to Opsini and we, we will, you know, surprise, we use Opsini all ourselves <laughs> internally. So <laughs> we, we, we get an alert and then it's, 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 it's amazing. So this way we managed to track or we managed to catch, uh, errors or incidents before our customers can even get it right because right. we and remember like you know this is again where you can leverage the characteristics of uh serverless uh, uh you know services or tools because again it's it's pretty easy to set up so developers can set this up right so the developers actually i remember uh, you know going around and playing with a few uh you know monitoring um, lambda functions myself when i was a developer 
so I set it up and then like, you know, getting that connected to New Relic and doing the whole, uh, so again, we, we try to practice, uh, we try to practice, you know, play by that, that motto, you build, you run it as much yeah. as possible. So for example, when something goes wrong, you know, obviously we, we get that alert and we try to, you know, we try to investigate it ourselves. So that all of that is made possible because at some point we are using Lambda functions to send a lot of monitoring data and, you know, uh, uh, generate a lot of data and send that monitoring data over to New Relic. Yeah. And I think, yeah. I think you actually, you hit the nail on the head in terms of where, where the SRE team members go um, after, you know, after some things become easier. And and you mentioned this idea of like CICD pipelines. So if it's super easy to set up a CICD pipeline, and it's just a matter of a couple of clicks in a dashboard, or it's just, you know, you have to deploy maybe another CloudFormation um, template or something. Um, if I was an SRE, which I've, I've, I've done roles similar to SRE in the past, um, okay. I would be really, really um, tired of setting up another CICD pipeline for somebody. Like if that was my job, just, Oh, we got to set up another one of these, set up another one of these, yeah. that is just wasted human capital where you could be spending that time. Like you said, writing a Lambda function that sends synthetic traffic or, um, yeah. getting into chaos engineering. Right. Right. So, I mean, if you're, yes. if you have people who are, are, are know the ops side of things, and can say, hey, what happens if this service can no longer communicate with that service? How does your service react? How does the other service recover, and so forth? Um, and again, becoming chaos engineers around that, I think, is uh, um, is, is a hugely important thing that larger teams have got to start doing. Maybe even smaller teams, um, but you've got right. to start doing to understand, you know, the nature of distributed systems and what happens when thing when one thing breaks down. So, um, yeah. I, I I do think that that there's an evolution here where it's like the more you can automate, the more Sort of your developers can own some of that stack it just frees up people to do more important work than things that can just easily be automated yeah yeah no i i definitely agree with you like uh like once you have a lot of automation again like you know we get back to the same point uh where like you have automation you can start thinking of the business logic you can start thinking about how you want your company to perform to scale uh, and you know basically work for your customers right and you know, I, like SRE, the, now when we look at SRE, we see, you know, you, SRE is now free to start, you know, basically, you know, looking at the resiliency of the system, right? right? Performing more tests, making sure that we are at the, the amount of nines that we want in terms of resiliency and availability. Right. Right. Uh, and SRE gets freed up because of that, right? Um, and like, also, when you were talking about automation and you mentioned uh, CI/CD, uh, uh, you know, I wanted to sidetrack to this, you know, the concept, you know, this up and coming concept of GitOps. So we have heard of, uh, quite a bit of it uh, recently. Uh, there's a company Weave Works, I believe they're they're really pushing the, the needle on this. Uh, they're they're looking at this quite a bit. Uh, but you know, like even that, right? When we think about automation, so a lot of that automation. Can you know uh, when you're managing your and it it you know this entire idea of GitOps is kind of a, uh, the motivation comes behind like the rising the rise of Kubernetes like you know a lot of right. kind of Kubernetes becoming popular and like how you would um, you know uh, you know manage your Kubernetes infrastructure and they're they're looking at uh, you know uh, the the property of Kubernetes uh, to kind of uh, it's because it's you know, it's a defined architecture, like, you know, you, uh, um, 
I forgot the term, so I'm so sorry. Like, uh, you know, yeah, you de you, you define it in your kubectl file with kubectl and everything, and like, right. and you would push that, uh, you'd push the change, uh, the, the infrastructure changes or your code changes. Uh, that's when GitOps would, you know, basically automate. You'd go from continuous delivery to continuous deployment. Uh, it's a push from continuous delivery to continuous deployment. But, you know, I whenever and whenever I look at continuous deployment, and so whenever I look at GitOps in general, like I find it very scary because okay you pushed something right. right and all of a sudden all of these things are ha happening automatically right your entire infrastructure is just about to change your entire code base is about to change and you didn't have like you know it's always very nice right to have somebody in the middle in a staging environment you first push it to a staging environment right. somebody in the middle it, right yeah exactly you test it exactly yeah. and then there's a little button that says okay you you know deploy and then it goes to production everything's cool you know but you're you're reducing that right and I, I, at the end of the day that's what the idea of uh you know devops is to try to reduce the manual labor and you know push for automation right but then, and then i look at GitOps and i'm like did we did we just like you know go go crazy like you know like are we going too far but uh, then, then that's where I see, okay, you can have, you know, it, GitOps shouldn't only be thought about in the terms of, okay, like, yeah, automating your deployment, but it should also, you should also think of uh, it from a perspective of observability. And again, when we were talking about observability, that's where I believe we can leverage these uh, Lambda functions, because one, your Lambda functions are very light and they're just used, being used for monitoring, right? So you're continuously monitoring the, the actual state as compared to the desired state, right? right? And whenever you see that the actual state has drifted away from the desired state, again, you can, you know, if, uh, you can I, you can either use Opsini as your alert consolidation tool, or you can, you know, just uh, trigger um, uh, an, an events through event bridge uh, from your Lambda function, send an events through event bridge, and again, go and remediate that. Or, uh, yeah, basically just go and remediate uh, that, uh, drift away from the desired state so this is one way right so we are looking at automation right and we are we are trying to find ways to go faster and faster and this happens that okay as we go faster we still need to remember maintain uh stability uh, maintain availability right. and this is where uh you can where we see the benefit of especially lambda functions or, or you know azure functions or you know whatever type of form of fast functions you're using because um you know when when we talk about using these you know using fast functions and uh, fast functions in uh in production for your actual code base you know there are a lot of limitations that everybody talks about a lot of edge cases that aren't covered by uh these services but in this case in this regard it fits perfectly because one it's cost effective it's easy to spin up and use it scalable right so if you want like at opportunity like when we want to uh can like increase the traffic on a certain api simply have several concurrent lambda functions just bombarding that api with requests and different kinds of requests right it's just scalable right you know it's easy to spin up and i see this this is exactly where one of the benefits lies right um but yeah you do have some limit but again yeah as i mentioned like in production you may have some limitations so you know when you're thinking about it in terms of microservices and active active architecture as we talked about before but when you're thinking about it as ancillary uh services and uh you know just helping you go through that devop uh, uh you know pipeline you it's, when you're thinking of it as a glue code especially glue code it's really beneficial to use uh serverless functions 
Yeah. Well, I think it, I think all that ties together too. And I mean, GitOps is something that, um, you know, just CICD continuous deploy, continuous deployment is one of those things where yes, it scares a lot of people because it's just going through fast, you know, and, and you're, but it, it, yeah. it allows you to move so quickly and make changes so quickly. And I think that if you embrace the whole culture, if you embrace the idea of microservices and serverless deploying very small units of code and, um, you know, just this idea of test driven development, or, you know, being able to have the tests that you need in there and so forth, the ability for you to roll back quickly, adding in things like chaos engineering to know what happens if we put something out there and it breaks that we know that the other things will degrade gracefully having that mm. capability and, and kind of following that whole thing i mean that's sort of the holy grail of of doing this stuff because it's okay if you break something sometimes um but you yeah. know, it should go through a test process and there should be a development environment where you're testing these things against other things um but if something does break you're isolating it you're you're minimizing you know you're, you're creating those bulkheads there that are minimizing the impact that it has on a uh, on a larger on a larger scale so um so we're running out of time and so before we before we finish though i, I do want to talk about i mean we've been talking a lot about serverless and, and event bridge and active active and and uh and dynamo db and all these great things um but there it's not like a team can just go ahead and shift tomorrow and start using all this stuff right like there are there are a number of barriers to adoption some of those being just the cultural change in a company first of all um yeah. but also just this idea of um uh, of the learning of these tools and then maybe even the limitation of some of these tools so what what are yeah. your thoughts on some of the uh some of the barriers that might exist yeah. to people who want to adopt not only devops but maybe devops you know with serverless yeah well actually um you know i think this is uh, i can best answer this with a story of mine like uh, or something that i experienced was especially when i when i switched over to uh ops genie from tundra so like remember i was in tundra uh, serverless that time tundra was a serverless monitoring tool now it's become much more of course but uh that time you know we were focused on service and i and i, I was just like oh my god this is an amazing technology then i switched over to ops genie and i see okay we aren't using it that much and in fact there was when i switched over to it a, a major service a major functionality of ours that was initially being built on uh, serverless architecture we uh, they, the the senior engineers rolled back on the decision and went back to ec2 uh, and other forms of container services and i was and i asked you know well, why did this happen you know i didn't have that much experience and i and i really wanted to know what what, what happened so i remember one of the co-founders actually sat me down you know he, he 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 was a pretty cool guy. He actually took me to a whole different uh, meeting room, and he like he sat me down like, okay, I'm going to teach you something now. I'm like, okay. So he uh, he he told me that the serverless is great, and it is definitely in some way the future. But in its current state, we do see a lot of issues, and this was back in uh, you know late 2018, mm -hmm. right? Let's say. Uh, so you know that time it, it around that time they didn't even uh, you know the the the. It, the maximum uh, runtime was five minutes, I believe, minutes, for a Lambda yes. function. Yep. Yeah. And then we saw it was in that same year or a bit later that we saw 15 minutes then. Uh, so that, that, that was a huge improvement, I would say. But, but you know, like, at that time, you know, we weren't ready or we weren't ready. Our use case was not the best use case or the way we were looking at our use case was not, the, was not in the best manner to uh, adopt serverless. And I think it's very important to understand this uh, to understand the limitations and what you can and cannot build and and how you can get around these barriers because i feel that there's always a way to get around these barriers mm -hmm. um are you just willing to invest in it right and 
it's and so we we it's not like uh, Opsinis, you know, gave up on serverless. Uh, we we continued. Uh, we we still use a lot of serverless uh, components in a lot of our uh, you know uh, in a lot of areas in Opsinis, especially in our DevOps pipeline. For example, uh, when we want to spin up emergency instances, we use uh, Fargate, or uh, we were using Fargate. I'm not sure if we are still. Mm -hmm. uh, we're using Fargate for our SRE, you know, logging and uh, and uh, and other operations uh, because you know it's easy to spin up and it's cost effective for that use case but there are definitely limitations and but i what i have noticed Jeremy, like even in that in the small period from 2018 since i graduated to now i've seen uh, and you you know we have all seen right. major leaps of improvement right from going just just mentioning you know five minutes to 15 minutes runtime, that was a major improvement. Uh, we were talking, you know, I remember there was this conversation, this whole conversation that I had with um, Emir Shamdan and how we were looking at, okay, uh, we need to think about uh, like, you know, cost, you know, runaway cost, right? And, you know, and we, we now see that we, the billing has become more granular for a lot of serverless services for example lambda functions it was 100 milliseconds now it's one millisecond right. so that in itself is just a is just a huge improvement i think we see the same thing for uh for yeah for definitely for a lot of uh, uh serverless services and then there are other things like for example like you know being able to debug uh right for your being able to debug your, your serverless uh infrastructure that in itself is problematic right but we do see a lot of improvements in the industry uh for example and also a lot of third-party tools are coming up so for example um you know i've been following thunder's growth uh growth as they went from you know uh as they kind of started encapsulating all of you know uh, enabling cloud developers uh and i and recently they came up with uh thunder sidekick which is i think a very cool feature and if yes. you know if people yeah. haven't if, yeah, if you haven't, if people haven't seen that, I, I recommend they go check it out. Uh, and you know, we're definitely looking at it. Um, it's, it's uh, but yeah, and we see a lot of you know, and this whole community that's coming up to fill in those gaps. And there's still a long way to go, but I still feel that where even what we have right now is pretty amazing. Yeah, no, I agree, and I, I think that there are limitations, and and serverless is, gen is is not a silver bullet, right? Like you're going to run into yeah. limitations, but I I do see. I mean, I would recommend to anybody if you are if you're trying to establish a really good DevOps practice within your organization, or you're just building applications, the the services that are serverless um, and have those serverless qualities are going to be the ones that make the most sense for you to choose if you can. If you can't, then don't. But if you can, choose those because that just gives you all of those benefits we've been talking about through this entire episode um, and just that ability for you to really own your code, get those CICD pipelines to the point where you're de delivering multiple, uh, you know, multiple releases per day and and, and things yeah. like that. So, um, so Sargeel, listen, I, thank you so much for joining me and spending this time um, and sharing your your knowledge on DevOps and, and serverless. Um, if you. people want to uh, get a hold of you or, you know, find out more stuff that you're working on, how do they do that? Uh, well, uh... Yeah, I'm I'm a pretty open guy. You can just contact me any uh, w with whatever channel you find. Uh, Twitter is 
great. Uh, so, I, uh, Jeremy, I think you are. I will put the, uh, yes. I'll put the stuff yeah, in the can, show notes. Yeah. Yeah. You can you can uh, you can contact me through Twitter or on my email. You can find my email on my website, which I think is also going to be in the show notes. Yep. Sargiyusuf.me. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. And uh, uh, yeah. So you can you can contact me through my Gmail or like Twitter anyway. And I would just love to talk to anybody who you know and. As you said, as you realize, Jeremy, I'm also pretty new to this field, uh, and you know, I there's a lot of you know, I learning that I need to do and I want to do, and so I would really love to for people to reach out, and I will I would really love to reach out to people and I guess brainstorm out a whole bunch of ideas and especially use cases because I think it's the use cases that are really driving all of these improvements in serverless. I totally agree. Yeah. Um, well, uh, listen, fresh blood and uh, new ideas, new perspectives are always good things. So um, also, if people want to check out OpsGenie, OpsGenie.com. Um, but otherwise, we'll put all the stuff in the show notes. Thanks again, Sargil. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you so much for having me. And that's this week's serverless chat. I want to give a huge thank you to Sargil Yusuf for being my guest this week and to our sponsor, Epsigon. If you want to check out the show notes and a full transcript of this episode, you can find them at serverlesschats.com slash 89. For more serverless chats, subscribe, sign up to be an insider, check us out on YouTube, and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can connect with me on Twitter, at Jeremy underscore daily. And if you want to keep up to date on everything serverless, make sure you subscribe to the Off by None newsletter at offbynone.io. Thank you so much for joining me, and I look forward to chatting with all of you again next week.